0: Part 31, Opening Days Major League Baseball and I were both born to Bloomington, Minnesota in 1961. We were twins, but not identical. I'm younger, so I've been a fan since birth. And my life can be divided into memories that have paralleled baseball since the Twins kicked the Minneapolis Millers out of the ball yard once called and a rector set in a cornfield, Metropolitan Stadium. The Met was our field of dreams, and my oldest memory is there, that day in 1964. Jimmy Brinkhouse and I, and a few thousand other kids, got new full-size Louisville Sluggers, compliments of the ball club in Hillerick and Bradsby Company, Wind Twins was carved on the sweet spot. Unlike the tiny worthless bats they give away today with pizza franchise logos, these bats were fully functional and critical to maintaining the game's status as America's pastime. By midsummer, equipment would be hard to come by in neighborhoods like ours on Beard Avenue, so we'd use anything shaped like a stick hit anything shaped like a ball, including the head off of your little sister's doll. Bat-day bats replaced chunks of lumber that looked like a long rawhide for a dog. They had electrical tape on the handles and cracks that were fixed by pounding a 20-pound sinker nail through the barrel. There are only two of those 1964 giveaways left on Earth and one is listed on eBay for twenty-two fifty. It's used, but in good condition. So we know it's not from Beard Avenue. On April 11, 1961, the world was still being captured in black and white. At Yankee Stadium, Marilyn Monroe, Toots Shore, and Joe DiMaggio watched, probably in shock, as Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, and the Yanks got thumped 6-0 by the Twins in their first game ever. The Dreamers peaked that day. The Twins' one-game lead disappeared. Then they got swept in a doubleheader on the day I was born, Father's Day. The damn Yankees went on to win the World Series again. The Twins ran two minor league teams out of town that year and the Minneapolis Millers and St. Paul Saints were separate and not equal to their big league parents in the Big Apple. The Giants chucked the polo grounds in Washington Heights for the Golden Hills of San Francisco and the Trolley Dodgers left Brooklyn's Flatbush neighborhood and Ebbets Field for Elysian Park at Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles. The Millers folded, and the Saints went to Omaha. By 1965, full color had come to Minnesota baseball when Met Stadium hosted both the All-Star Game and the World Series, with names like Mudcat, Batty, Zoilo, Camilo, and the phenom, Tony O., in the Midsummer Classic, the American League trailed by five runs early before local favorite Harmon Kilbrew tied the game with a two run bomb in the fifth. The National Leaguers, who left broken hearts in the boroughs, did more of the same in a Midwestern cornfield with a one run victory. The loss moved the North Star and Minnesota became the close-but-no-cigar state. Sandy Koufax and the Dodgers beat us in the World Series three months later. There were twin killings in 69 and 70 by Baltimore in the league championship. Minnesota's football Vikings claimed the first of their four second-place finishes in 1970, and the state's favorite son, Hubert Humphrey, became vice president in relief after the Kennedy assassination, then presidential runner-up to Nixon in the balloting of 1968. On the stage of world politics and confrontation, Minnesotans participated as the U.S. finished second to the commies in Vietnam. In the mid-60s, parents and baseball executives picked their battles more carefully. They let kids be kids. Twins owner Calvin Griffith didn't fix the bent-up corner of a metal fence in left field at Met Stadium whereas youngsters would drop our bikes, climb over and crawl under the bleachers to chat through chain link with outfielders like Al Kaline, Roger Maris or the Twins Bobby Allison and Tony Oliva before his knees went bad. Once a year pop would take us to sit in seats and eat popcorn from a cone-shaped cardboard cup that turned into a megaphone. If you couldn't climb a bent fence, watch through a knot hole, or eat popcorn in an actual seat, radio was the way to experience baseball. Back before television corrupted sports with piles of cash that turned folk heroes into false gods... There were voices that painted the pictures of baseball artistry with phrases like Tinkers, whoever's, to chance. There's a long drive. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. And Holy cow. Vin Scully was the master of atmosphere and stayed quiet when a roaring crowd was greater than words. If the time was right for description, he'd say things like, He's twitching his leg like a horse, trying to get rid of an irksome fly. The broadcasters were everyone's uncle. Some he loved, some not. Mel Allen, Ernie Harwell, Harry Carey. Scully's first broadcast featured a man born during the Civil War, and the last game he did. Was played by millennials. I claim allegiance to the many voices of baseball, and to a team from each circuit. The American League Twins, of course, and down at the farm in Illinois, Grandma Eula was a huge fan of Jack Buck and the National League's Cardinals, so I was too. Stan Musial sat next to her at a lunch counter one time in St. Louis as she waited for Granddad to finish a cattle buy. Gramps was all fired up when he sat down and bragged that he had just traded hellos with the Cardinal Great. Is that who that was? Gram smugly replied. He just left that seat. Very nice man. Pat Aylshire, Gramps, was no stranger to baseball or the Cardinals. He played semi pro for Old Style Lager and the Plymouth Home Grocers in the 1930s and filled in on Dizzy and Daffy Dean's 1934 barnstorming team that would often cross paths with the unhittable Satchel Page. Gramps loved to cite Dizzy's homespun stories and syntax, like, He slid into third, or The doc examined my head but found nothing. In 1974, Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times eulogized Dean. Well, we're all 10 years older today. Dizzy Dean is dead. And 1934 is gone forever. Another part of our youth fled. You look in the mirror, and the small boy no longer smiles back at you. Just that sad old man. Dizzy died the other day, at the age of 11 or 12. The little boy and all of us died with him. But, for one brief shining afternoon in 1934, he brought joy to that dreary time when we most needed it. Dizzy Dean. It's impossible to say without a smile. But then who wants to try? If I know old Diz, he'll be calling God Pardoner somewhere today. He might have been what baseball is all about. Old Diz was the tonic in a game that Americans needed as a bracer against hopelessness when economics ran dry. The box score was a daily morality play with good guys in white pinstripes versus bad guys in the grayness of uncertainty. The game once carried a flame of hope for Americans that kept us young. The unofficial slogan, wait till next year, became synonymous with optimism and fortitude. On Dad's side, Grandpa Pickett knew about fortitude. He lived through a World War I artillery barrage in Europe, tore up his body and poisoned his eyesight. He returned home to survive a flu epidemic that killed 50 million people, including 675,000 Americans. One of his simple pleasures was a transistor radio that carried the voice of the Millers, then the twins, Halsey Hall. On Sundays, our grandparents often attended noon church services. Where Gramps would pull a sleight of hand switcheroo of his hearing aid for a radio earphone, and Halsey would be preaching the apostles of baseball in a pregame homily. Gramps passed in the summer of 79, and the 80s brought a whole new chapter to my baseball life. I couldn't hit a curveball, but could occasionally turn on a phrase for the Augsburg College student newspaper. The sports beat implanted me on the team bus that took us to Reed Springs, Missouri and the Show Me Baseball camp for spring training in 1982. As the bus rolled through Iowa and Missouri to the Ozarks, I taught the guys how to play a card game called pitch that my brother, grandparents, and I played every night at the farm. It's a variation of euchre, that's popular in states where everyone loved Dizzy Dean. John Turner and I were doing pretty well one evening at a back hills joint called Bouncing Betty's. When Betty subtly reminded me that Ozark Mountaineers might not appreciate losing money to carpet-bagging Yankee boys. We didn't need to be showed. We made sure we broke even made peace with our southern brothers and headed back to camp. By 1983, the farm had become my Puff the Magic Dragon. The land was still there, but the baseball people, the radio in the shade by the Big Maple, and the tractor tube I used for a pitchback were all gone. But as a function of humanity... Baseball has a way of reinventing itself. Augsburg drew kids from small towns throughout the state, and I was introduced to a marvelous culture that is uniquely Minnesota, town team baseball. Other states have adult amateur baseball, but not like the North Star State, where more than 300 teams play ball from the Canadian border to Iowa. In leagues named Lando Ducks, Lake and Pine, Arrowhead, and Red River. Several college buddies played summer ball for the Wilmer Rails in western Minnesota, and I hopped on board for visits to a dozen or more classic small-town venues. Each town had their own local legends, and all sold cans of beer from an icy five-gallon bucket for a dollar. The flamethrower Gary Veen of Montevideo went to the U. Atwater's speedy Mike Kingry broke into the Bigs with the Royals. Dana Kicker of Fairfax pitched in the World Series for the Red Sox. And Jim Eisenreich of St. Cloud batted 361 for the Phillies. I don't recall the name of the 47 year old hurler for the Raymond Rockets, as everyone just called him. Wily Veteran Left-Hander For those of us prone to nostalgia, baseball is a wonderfully endless escape into 150 years of personality, stats, and provocative memorabilia from Cooperstown to the Pacific Coast League, the Carolinas, and the Nimrod Nats of the Lake and Pine. My favorite piece of paraphernalia from the past was a plastic AM radio at Long Gone Cullors Bar in Minneapolis. It had a Grain Belt beer logo, the slogan, been a long time a-brewin', and a line score to be updated in wax pencil as patrons listen to games. Presumably, to cover for one of my favorite announcers, Herb Carneal, who could go an hour or so without mentioning the score? When I asked Ma Culla if the radio was spoken for if she ever sold the place, you would have thought I asked for her Scottish grandmother's wedding ring. Ma always had an edge, but she didn't even snort out a sarcastic laugh. Hers was a perfectly dingy beer and peanuts joint. It was a great place to listen to a twins game to study, or challenge a handful of profs when Jeopardy! came on at 4 o'clock. At 10.31 p.m. on October 25, 1987, Minnesota finally won a cigar. That's the moment the twins vanquished decades of heartbreaks and redeemed the soul of our favorite son in the stadium we named for him the Hubert Horatio Humphrey Metrodome. The place was slightly better than the worst ballpark in history, Tropicana Field in Tampa. And from the outside, the dome looked like one of America's roadside attractions, the world's largest tin of Jiffy Pop popcorn. But it was our popcorn stand, and in the spirit of Mr. Humphrey, The state boldly declared, We like it here, in large block letters beyond the right field line. The championship was bittersweet for me, as it came at the expense of my grandmother and the Cardinals. But they already had nine titles, so I got over it by about 1032. The 90s were a new chapter altogether again. Except the decade started with another world championship. By this time, I was implementing marketing programs in the world of sports and all dialed in with behind the scenes access to the bowels of stadiums where Major League Baseball made its sausage. The access came from my bosses who had worked in the sausage factory, then figured out how to escape the grind by leveraging the personalities stats, and memorabilia, consumer promotions for major brands like Wheaties and Snickers. Gone were the 15-hour days and constant pressure to win and sell, then sell and win. A former Twins executive turned co-worker and one of the most pragmatic and unselfish men I've ever met, Mark Weber, is a Minnesota baseball legend to the little people. He'd skim booty from Candyland in the locker room or from piles of promotional items then share like Robin Hood with ticket takers, custodians and parking lot attendants. He recognized my love of the game and advised me to not get too close. Because of him, I didn't have to. But got plenty of plunder anyway. Trying to repay favors to Webb it was like trying to hit Satchel Page. You could fantasize about it, but it could only happen with pure luck. My baseball luck arrived in circumstance and coincidence for more than a decade. The St. Paul Saints minor league club was reborn on my 32nd birthday and threw a big party. A few buddies and I had flight benefits that took us on day trips to Wrigley, Fenway, Bush, and Tiger Stadium. I had a client who was a key supplier to the Red Sox, and we watched a game from inside the Green Monster. One September, the boys and I were scheduled to fly to Milwaukee to watch Graham's Cardinals play. The day before we left, four planes went down. And every ball game, every flight in the hemisphere was canceled for weeks. As a designer of promotional marketing programs, I traveled around the country to sports venues and would occasionally find myself in a seat next to a personality who brought statistics to life. I worked for several weeks at a time at the Phoenix Open Golf Tournament in Scottsdale And often-dined bar-side at Don and Charlie's Steakhouse. Baseball spring training was ramping up at the same time. An old-timer who saddled up next to me asked, "'What's your story, kid? Where are you from?' "'St. Paul,' I replied. "'St. Paul, not Minneapolis,' he said with a knowing nod. "'I know St. Paul.' I struck out 20 of you bastards for Louisville in 49. It was Mickey McDermott who ended up with those Yankees. I noticed his World Series ring had a 56 on it and asked, gape-mouthed, where he was when Don Larson threw the only perfect game in World Series history. In the bullpen, eating Phil Rizzuto's spaghetti, he said as if he still had one over on Scooter. 50 years later. McDermott didn't have a lick of humility, but he sure had the gift of gab, and I enjoyed it for a couple of hours that night. Back in St. Paul, where he set the minor league strikeout record, my wife and I got to meet the antithesis to his personality at, of all places, a St. Paul Saints game. The unpretentious Buck O'Neill was better in person than he was in Ken Burns' film Baseball that documented his patience and forgiveness for languishing in the Negro Leagues when he had the talent to be playing in the Majors. You couldn't just meet and greet Mr. O'Neill. He was too engaging. Before you knew it, he was telling stories about his departed wife, Aura Lee, flashing his infectious smile and graciously talking about his good fortune. True baseball people are that way. They approach every at-bat with optimism, and hopefully wait till next year in the off-season. True baseball people, however, aren't seen at every East Coast streetcar station, or in the Midwest cornfields as they once were. A tattered, wind-twins Louisville slugger with a nail through its heart has been replaced with modern composites and hearts of aluminum. The game has been squeezed like polymers into American pockets, while hungry kids in Dominican neighborhoods are hitting anything shaped like a ball with anything shaped like a stick. Voices grow dim, then slip off to wherever that big old maple with a radio is now casting its shade. But I'll keep listening, with the spirit of my grandfather, for new voices to emerge. As did baseball 100 years ago, when World War I, the Spanish flu, and the Black Sox scandal tried to kill it. After the greed of a strike stole the summer of 94, and more recently, in the new millennium, when industrial-age memories were tainted by performance-enhancing needles that point to artists who became artificial. Our wait till next year was a bit longer in 2020, as the fearful uncertainty of another pandemic measured our fortitude and postponed all kinds of opening days. It wasn't the first nasty slider we'd ever seen, It was deja vu all over again. When our national pastimes returned, the rules were different, and a lot of folks were too scared to come out of the dugout. But the true baseball people took a deep breath, dug in, then faced the next at-bat with a fresh count and the renewed optimism of a brand new season.